0: All right, great to see you. Take your Bibles. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter six. We're gonna look at a crazy passage uh, today. I wanna to say hello to other Western North Carolina campuses. We're one church in a bunch of different rooms around Western North Carolina. And uh, every one of us in about two weeks has got a huge opportunity. Uh, there's a uh, Sunday coming up called Easter. And uh, for the last year, we're about a year into this pandemic. And for the last year, you have sowed into your community. You've demonstrated it through everything from uh, blood drives to uh, vaccination sites, to uh you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into servers, and that is demonstrating the gospel in a lot of ways. But one of the ways we can declare it is a simple invitation. So what you've got uh, on your chairs, you got these little uh, Easter invites. They might not look like much, but this can make a huge difference. Over the years, uh, little invites, just simply leaving that. If you go out to eat, uh, that person that's worked next to you for two years, and you're like, I don't know what to do, invite them to Easter, either online or on site, uh, wherever people are in kind of that emerging. From uh, COVID, then uh, there's something for them. So right there, if you run out, we've got like six billion of these, so they are ready for you to pick up and and uh, and distribute. And so we're in this deal called the Year uh, of the Bible. All right, and again, we're going to look at uh, 2 Samuel 6 today. And um, one of the things that I mentioned a few weeks ago is as a diesel truck owner for the first year of owning a diesel truck, I was deathly afraid of putting the wrong fuel into the truck because I knew that if I put just normal gas in my truck, it would jack my truck up. And again, I, I, so every time I pulled up for the first year, I was like, okay, make sure, make sure you just don't, you're not multitasking and you put the wrong fuel in. Because when I put the right fuel in, thing is, it just hums. I mean, it's got, I don't know how much torque it can, rumor has, that it can go very, very fast. It's not even very loud like those old diesel engines. Uh, it's really quiet as well. And here's the deal. If, if I put it in, it does great. If I, put the wrong, if I ever put the wrong fuel in, everything begins to break down. It, just, it, it would get loud. If it'd get noisy, it would eventually break down and it would be very, very costly. What we're going to talk about today out of an unusual passage of scripture is really the fuel for the Christian life. If you're like, man, it's been a long time since I had the joy of my salvation. It's been a long time since God worked supernaturally in my life. Man, it's a long time since I've seen God really at work in my family. Then this passage is for you. And I will just say one thing on on the front end as well. In our church, we have a wide variety of backgrounds when it comes to worship. All right, so some of you came from a background that is much more uh, reverent, much more, uh, you know, hands and feet inside the roller coaster, and maybe you came from a Catholic background or Episcopal background or Presbyterian or some Baptist background, and you're like, you know what, it just needs to be a little quieter and a little, you guys settle it down just a little bit, and that's, that's some of you. Others of you came from maybe a little more emotive, a little more Pentecostal, a little more that background. And um, you're like, man, if I'm not sweating, I'm not worshiping. And that's kind of what you grew up with. You're like, yeah, yeah. And the tendency, the temptation is for both groups to look down on the other group. The tendency for those of you that grew up and maybe that more reverent one is to kind of look down on the ones that are like getting after it. And you're like, hey, settle down, man. This is like God's house. Be quiet a little bit. But on the other hand, the others of you that maybe grew up a little more Pentecostal background, you're like, hey man, this isn't a funeral, all right? This is a celebration. The tomb is empty, let's celebrate like it is. And you're like, yeah, which one's right? Well, believe it or not, there's gonna be a little bit uh, for both camps uh, today. And uh, not only that, it's also gonna be a little more, it's gonna have a kind of a difficulty uh, in it as well that we'll try to work through um, as we walk through this passage. But uh, what you're gonna see is you're basically gonna see one guy who dies and one guy who dances today. You're gonna see a preacher's kid who dies and you're gonna see a king uh, who dances, all right? You're gonna see one guy that celebrates and one person that mourns. And then uh, let me say this, unlike Uh, the last services. uh, We are going to practice this at the end. All right. So if you want to like be able to make an A plus at church today, at the end, then man, lean in and let's, uh, let's work on this deal called gospel centered worship. So we're going to work through, we're going to work through, there's a little bit of cultural leaps we've got to make. So second Samuel chapter six is where we're going to be. And it actually starts off pretty easy for the first five or six verses. And then some of you are going to get offended about verse seven. That's okay because that's where we're going to actually talk about a little bit. So 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 1 it says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel 30,000 and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from the from up from there the ark of God. We're going to talk about that in a second, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. He's talking about a particular part of the ark. So Give me 60 seconds, let me tell you what's going on here. The Ark of the Covenant, some of you are like thinking Raiders of the Lost Ark, not exactly, okay? The Ark of the Covenant was a box that God prescribed his people on how to build it, how to move it very, very specifically. Big picture, Old Testament had a lot of symbols that were all pointing to Jesus. And one of these, the most holy piece of furniture in the tabernacle, in the temple, was called the Ark of the Covenant. And you had a couple of different things. You had some manna to show about God's provision. You had the 10 commandments to show God's law and the way we've broken God's law. And on top of that was called the mercy seat that I'll come back to very, very picturesque of the gospel. But for our discussion, just think this. Think this is a symbol of the presence of a holy God. This is a symbol of the presence of the holy God. But what had happened in Israel is that it kind of turned into like a lucky charm or a four-leaf clover or a rabbit's foot for the people of Israel. They sort of looked at it as their good luck charm. And they had this sort of mixed relationship with it. And so they'd go back and forth. Sometimes it gets stolen by the Philistines and they were like, the Philistines didn't want it because God was like, you know, you know what? I'm gonna smack you Philistines around. They're like, give it back, give it back. Long story short, what has happened is the most precious piece of furniture that God said, listen, take care of this, build it right, move it right. He's basically been stuck in a guy's garage out back for decades. David comes on the scene after 40 years of Saul and King Saul as the leader, as his spiritual walk went down, the people's spiritual walk went down and they grew very, very callous toward the things of God. So David comes on the scene, he's like, we're gonna make this right. Go get the Ark of the Covenant. It's behind this priest's garage. Go get it. Bring it up to Jerusalem. And he says, we're going to have a parade to celebrate this. And that's where the 30,000 guys come in. And it's like a Macy's parade. Everything is going good so far. So here's, here's what happens. And this is, what, this is kind of what I want you Because if there's going to be a lot of crazy stuff happening. And understand the overarching umbrella of thought is be careful of what I'm just going to call a casual worship. All right. Be careful of casual worship. All right. Here's what it is. Verse three. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. First of all, that's like wrong. It's, they're already messing stuff up. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out uh, of the house of Abinadab. He's like a priest or a preacher, all right, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, these are preacher's kids, all right, because Anyway, so they'd grown up around all this holy stuff, which is actually part of the problem because they grew real callous, real used to the things of God. The sons of Abinadab, and they were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. All right, so everything's going good. Verse five, people are having a big worship service and David and all the house of Israel. They're celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So again, so far so good. Everything is going awesome. They're having a great worship service. And it's kind of like that, uh, it's kind of like the, 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 the music in a movie in Jaws. It's like, you know, when the shark is around, it's like the music changes, all right? This is about to change and change quick. When they came, to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yuza, preacher's kid, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. Now don't go to the next verse. For the oxen stumbled. So again, just realize in your mind what's going on. They'd already said, you know what? Forget the way that God said to move it. Forget the way that God said to sacrifice before as you moved it along. Forget the fact that he actually told you to put these poles and you guys threw it in the back of a pickup and that's the way you're moving it. And then somehow the ox stumbles a little bit and so the preacher's kid thinking, hey, you know what? I'm gonna put my hand up to help God out because God is about to fall into the dirt. And then... The anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza, and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. And some of you are like, that is not what God should have done. I mean, I would have expected a voice from heaven to saying, thank you, Yuza. I was about to fall in the dirt and you helped me not fall. But at least it's like, you know what? That seems like an overreaction off of somebody who seems to just be trying to help out just a little bit. And just so you know, just like that might upset you and offend us, that actually offends David because verse eight says this. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Yusa and that place is called Perez Yuza, which basically means breaking out to this day. Now, the reason I wanna pause there for a second is sometimes we get the idea that we are the first people to ever be offended by the Bible. In kind of our social media enlightened age and culture in which we live in, sometimes we think I'm offended by some of the things that God says. And what I want to just put before you today is we're not the first people to be offended by what God says. God is an equal opportunity offender. The Bible has offended people of every age and of every culture. It just depends on what offends the people. For example, in our day and time, what offends us as Westerners typically is God's sexual ethic. We're like, that offends me. That that prohibits me from fulfilling who I am. So we get offended when God says, let's say, for example, that sex is to be between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. But listen, if you take that, those same verses and you go over to the Middle East, that does not offend them at all. They're like, you know, of course, of course, that's the way that sex is supposed to be used. That's the way that sex is supposed to be uh, practiced. What offends them is not those verses, it's the other verses that say, you know what? Forgive those who are your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They're like, that offends me. We don't pray for those people. We take them out. What kind of, so again, understand, God has offended people for years. We're not the first ones. And uh, here the, uh, before we take a little pause here, look at these last few verses. David was afraid of the Lord that day. Of course he was. I mean, he just killed the preacher's kid right there, just trying to help, help the ox out a little bit. It's like, what am I gonna do? So David's afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, this is Jerusalem, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, basically he's taking him to a non-Jew. He's like, you know what, the presence of God, the ark of God, just get it out of the house. If he's gonna kill the preacher's kid, what is he gonna do to me? And then uh, verse 11 says, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, And then the, but the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. You're like, all right, what's the deal with all the difficult names? What do we have to learn about this? Let me give you two things real quick. Number one, scenes like this are not all over the Bible, but they are in the Bible. In other words, this is the kind of passage that like the atheist blogger, will say, you know what, that's why I don't believe in, that's, that's, that's why I don't like the God that I don't even believe in anyway. So understand, usually it's not the act of wrath of God, it's passive, God just delivers us over to our own sin. And it's like, okay, you want the consequences, go on. But these are in there. And what this does show us to some degree, at least at minimum, is there is no such thing as I show up and say, you know what, I worship God in my own way. Doesn't matter how you worship God, I worship God this way, it is a personal thing. Loved ones, God had given specific instructions on how he wanted this whole, now you're thinking it's a box. Just when you think box, think presence of God. It's a picture of the presence of God. And he says, I've got particular things that I want you to do. And there's a reason for it. Everything was a symbol. Everything was a symbol. Everything from the law to the holy of holies, to this, all that stuff was a picture. And they're like, forget that stuff. Forget that stuff. Who cares about your stuff? I'm just going to do it my own way. And they had grown very casual in their worship. God even put poles in there to say, carry it. And they take it, throw it in the back, get an ox to do it. Very, very casual in their worship. And one of the things that this kind of strikes us as being unfair is, let's just be, let's be blunt. Most of us, when we read, the, the, one of the great things about the year in the Bible one of the great things about your year in the Bible is the fact that you're gonna read some passages that are not familiar with, with you. You're gonna read some passages like this, you're like, man, I, that, that's confusing. But one of the things about this is we oftentimes find the God of the Bible a little bit too edgy for us sometime. It's like, I didn't expect him to act this way. And so what we tend to do is we're drawn toward a God that is a little more tame, a little more domesticated And so we leave out verses like this and we really focus on other verses. I heard a preacher the other day said this, and I don't wanna misquote him. Preacher said this, the message of Jesus was an all-inclusive love. The message of Jesus, I mean, that's a big statement. The message of Jesus is an all-inclusive love. Now, certainly there is some truth to that, but Would you say that the message of Jesus is an all-inclusive love? I think the person that actually should answer that is Jesus himself. Jesus himself did not say that. Here's what Jesus said about Jesus's message. At the start of his ministry, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He said, my message right at the start, Mark chapter one, it's like, you know what? The kingdom of God is here. All this stuff that's been preached about, talked about, all the symbolism that has been looked at for thousands of years, boom, it is fulfilled in me. Repent, change sides, and believe. Loved ones, we have to remember the God of the Old Testament, and the God of the New Testament are not two different gods. Usually it's looked at the Old Testament God as like mean and vengeful and wrathful. And we have to understand Jesus Meek, mild, gentle Jesus talked more about wrath, more about judgment than any other New Testament writer. And he's the one that's like, come over to my side. Jesus was not Mr. Rogers with a beard. That's not who he was. And Jesus does love us. You don't die for somebody that you don't love. Jesus does love us, but it's not a casual kind of love. I mean, what is it? The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's, uh, a story where the person comes up talking about Aslan the lion and saying, hey, is he, is he safe? Is the lion safe? And they correctly say, safe? He's not safe, but he is good. When it comes to the God of the Bible, this story makes it clear, is he safe? He is not safe, but he is good. And all week long, I've been thinking about, why do we do that? Why do I have a tendency to wanna minimize the verses like Isaiah six or the holiness of God or even the judgment of God because deep down somewhere, there's always that gravitational pull toward, you know what, my sin cannot be that bad. I mean, I cannot really be a wretched black-hearted sinner. I can't really be that bad. And for God to judge somebody would, you know, that just seems wrong. And what that ends up going to is just, we've gotta just go back to the cross of Jesus. That's why when Passion of the Christ came out, you had a ton of critics that are like, that's pornographic, that is a terrible movie because of all all the gore, all the violence. And they're like, you should not show that. What they missed was that wasn't even as bad as in real life when you study a crucifixion, when Jesus gets nailed, put in his hands, into his feet, when they take a whip and they pull back his skin, when his insides come out and it says, you know what, he didn't even look like a man. And you're like, that's gross, that's gross. And the people are like, that's gross, that's gross. And what we don't understand is there's a reason that that's gross. We're grossed out by that. And the reason we think it's gross is we don't understand our sin is gross. And our sin is, I mean, God's like, I can't deal with that sin. So when we look at this, uh, here's what happens in our worship, is our worship is always suffering when man is maximized and God is minimized. When we start off in churches in the West, it is just prevalent. Let's start off with, you know, hey, God is here to help us fulfill our potential by Friday. That's not the God of the Bible, it's not about us. John the Baptist had one of the best worship statements, I must decrease, he must increase. Worship means this one is worth more. When you and I are worshiping, what we're saying is less of me, more of God. It's not about me, it's all about God. That's what worship is. You're like, where's that in the Bible? Because when I read my New Testament, I don't see a bunch of that. Let me let me say, say something. There's not a lot about worship style in the New Testament. I don't know if you realize that. When you look at this book, the New Testament is not about. There's not a whole bunch about worship. Now, yes, I know John four where Jesus is talking about worship. That's probably worship concentrate. He says you worship me in spirit and in truth. I know where Ephesians says you know what? Sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I know there's some great scenes in the book of Revelation, but generally speaking, the New Testament is a missional book. The Old Testament is more of a worship book. The Old Testament is worship with mission. The New Testament is mission with some worship. And so what we try to do, just so you know the target we shoot at here is we kind of start to get back more on-site and on-site gatherings and stuff, just so you understand what we try to go for. If you think back to the Old Testament and the tabernacle, or then it became the temple, there were certain things they would do. And we're not legalistic about it. We're not like, hey, we're Old Testament saints. We're not talking about that. But there's certain rhythms, certain things that we can learn about how we worship. So just so you know, here's what we try to do. You even saw it today. When you look at the Old Testament form that they did in the tabernacle and the temple, they started off with either a Psalm of ascent or they would worship at the gate. That's kind of like what they did when they arrived. When they arrived, it was like, clap your hands, uh, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. There's a section in your Bible called the Psalms of Ascent. And what that was is those were songs that they would sing as they ascended up to go to the temple in Jerusalem. They had a certain tone to them. They had a certain celebratory aspect to them. And so typically what that does for us is usually our first song is usually kind of upbeat, kind of, hey, hey, let's get, clap your hands. Let's go. Today was He Lives. He Lives. It was upbeat. Then you start getting into like those courts of testimony. And the courts of testimony for us would be songs like, uh, uh, you know, like what we did today. What was a song, song number two was what, Overall I Know. It's like, you know what, God's Overall I Know. This is God's activity in my life. Maybe you might see a testimony of God at work or a school that we're about to adopt or something like that. But then as you get a little bit closer and you walk and you progress in there, and back in the Old Testament, they were getting into the holy place, the holy of holies. It was like a room within a room within a room. There's no, there's no clapping and hollering all that much right then. Nothing about us, nothing about what we're gonna do, nothing about a New Year's resolution, nothing about my faithfulness, all about God's, all about the gospel, all about the holy of holies, which for a New Testament sake, that's the cross. That's when Jesus died and rose again. And so when you hear songs like that, and we're gonna try it here at the end as well, it's like man of sorrows, man of sorrows, lamb of God, by his own betray, the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Can I just tell you, I've heard that song for 10 years. That's probably a 10 year old song. We sung that song for a while. And it wasn't until Friday, and I've always loved the song. I think we did it maybe five Easter's ago or something like that. But I probably listened to that song this past Friday and put it on repeat over and over and over and over and over again. And right about the fifth or sixth time, and it just broke me. It just broke me because I had sung that song just because it was a cool vibe. It had a nice meaning to it. But all of a sudden, I'm sitting there singing that and it comes to this and it says, oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love was poured out over me. And what's the response? It says, now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. And there's some of those other verses, like I'm in my truck and I'm just like, I cannot believe I've been casual in singing that song. And it was a wake up call to say, when you sing that song, think about what's going on. That's your sin and God's wrath being taken right there, your just punishment right there. And so when we understand, you know what, who we are and who God is and what God has done, man, worship just explodes. It just explodes. And so you're like, what does that even look like? if we're not supposed to do casual worship, what you see in the last couple of verses is what we're just gonna call gospel-centered worship. And you're gonna be blessed by it. Now, again, let me be clear. We come to bless God. We come to, it's not about, we want, We want this to be a blessing to you. But before that, we understand if God doesn't clap when you're done worshiping, it was a waste. You might say, that's the most phenomenal sermon I've ever heard, I've never heard vocalists like that. But if God doesn't clap when we're done, then it was a fail, it was a circus is what it was. But the same with you, if God doesn't look down on you and say, you know what, that's my girl down there, and clap and say, you know, good job there. And you might have come to a place. You might have attended a service, but the question is, did you worship? And so, what you see in the text is David takes three months to figure out. Man, I've blown it. I got flippant with the holy stuff. I got casual. In three months, you're going to see all of a sudden he goes from casual to concentrated. And so, verse uh, go verse twelve to fifteen goes this way. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. In other words, listen, God's presence is awesome, but the fact that you were messed up, listen, he's blessing this other household and all that belongs to him. Why? Because of the ark of God, the presence of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. And here's the key. Worship, the main tenor of worship is rejoicing. There's times to weep. There's times to hit your face. Generally speaking, worship is to be done in, a, in the idea of an emotion of joy. Look at these last few verses. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. It's a little different than throw him in the back of the pickup and haul him to Jerusalem, isn't it? Now it's like, be very careful on how you worship. And David uh, danced before the Lord. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Oh, you're like, man, I feel like dancing. Mom. You know, I'm not going to say not to. I would say just theologically, it's the only place you see really him dancing a bunch. You don't see him two-stepping when he kills Goliath. You know, you don't see that. But it's like, if you got your little feet moving, that's fine. Most of us, that is <laughs> it's not glorifying to the Lord uh, when we dance. But if you do it, go after it. Nobody's going to call you down. David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Some of your translations say, and David danced before the Lord naked. First of all, that will get you called down if you do that. So, and it doesn't, and by the way, ephod doesn't really mean naked. It's it's actually, ephod was like a prayer vest. It was like a a long t-shirt kind of. What it was, the idea was, is that David had all this kingly stuff, all these kingly robes, and he takes all of that stuff off. Why? Because he's worshiping and he's like, there's just room for one king here and it's not me. And so he takes it off celebrating. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound uh, of a horn. And as you kind of go on a little bit, you'll, you'll see that there's a, I mean, this guy, he's, he's, he's fired up about it. So where do you see the gospel in this Old Testament crazy story? Where do you see this? See it in at least two places. They didn't take six steps before they sacrificed an animal. Sometimes when people are new to church and new to Bible study. And you hear all these songs about the lamb and all this stuff. They're like, what do you guys have against lambs? I mean, you guys are just like lamb haters. What is the problem with your, what you? We don't hate lambs. We don't hate lambs at all. The idea goes way back to the Old Testament because it says this, the sacrificial system was like a, like a blinking sign to what Jesus would do on the cross. But then you go back even to the ark. Remember I told you the mercy seat? Check this out, mercy seat, mercy seat. That's what we say in English the mercy seat was that gold plate with two angels. Think Easter, think empty tomb when the two angels are sitting there where Jesus was. These are like two angels sitting there. And what would happen is once a year, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood of a lamb and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat so that the sins of the people would be covered for one year and year after year, after year, after year, after year, after year, they'd have to do it. And they do that Year, 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 year. And all of a sudden God goes silent for 400 years and then God speaks and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so that mercy seat is pointing to Jesus. We say mercy seat in English. In the Hebrew, they would say the hilisterium. In the Greek, the word is propitiation. It's the word that we said a few weeks ago that says propitiation, a payment that satisfies and loved one's worship is a revelation followed by a response. And so when God reveals, you know what, that was my sin on the cross, we're not just singing some Hillsong song, we're singing about my sin on a cross. Then all of a sudden instead of saying, I'm not sure I like the words, or I'm not sure what my March Madness team is doing, it just explodes because you're like, that's my sin. God took my sin. God is satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross. And if he's satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross and you're in Christ, he cannot be dissatisfied with you. And you walk in here and you've got a limp and you're not sure what God thinks of you and you're in Christ, you gotta understand he loves you. Not just the future version of you, but you. So that's what you rejoice in. You don't rejoice in because you're gonna do better next time. You rejoice in the gospel and what he has actually done. So here's my question, one question. What? does your worship this morning, what has that told other people about the worth, the value that you give God? So we had three songs this morning. If your kid, if a little junior was sitting beside you, watching you worship mommy, dad, if they're watching you worship, how you actually worship, what would they say dad believes about God based solely on the way that he worshiped for three songs? I know some of you are going, well, it's more than singing. Worship's a way of life, and it is a way of life. It is a way of life. I mean, it is the way that you go to work tomorrow, and it is the way that you raise your kids, and it is the way we help our community. Those are worshipful. But when the Bible commends and commands us to worship, it is talking about intentional, specific ascription of worth. Saying, I adore you. That's who I love. And so let me ask the question again. If the only advertisement that anybody had was the way you worshiped God this morning, what would they think of the worth of your God? Or that person that you've been praying for for a year that works at your school or at your work, if they just saw the way that you advertise God in the way that you sang Man of Sorrows this morning, if that's all they saw, what would they think of how great your God is? Would they go, man, I don't know. He's sitting there with a cup of coffee acting kind of cool. God might just be okay. Something to add on. Or if you were going flat out, pedal to the metal, where they say, you know what? That guy believes God is an awesome, awesome God. So let me bring it down and land the plane for a second before we practice. What does this look like? I know, I know worship can be public and private. Private worship is Stuff we're doing through the the Bible, quiet times, add that to your private worship. But when it comes to this worship, here's what he says. He says, Jesus in John 4 says, I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. That's what you see David doing. Spirit, emotion, heart. It says he did it with all of his might. He did it with all of his might. Just a question again. Would you say that your first half of this worship service, that you gave God all your might? Would you say, you know what? I worshiped God with all of my might. It might not have looked like dancing, might not even look like singing, but what it did is I gave him all of my might. And then he says, do it in spirit and in truth. Truth is Bible truth. Truth is like, you know what? We actually get in here. We actually dig in here. You can, you can be, God can speak to you through this. Truth is, uh, you see it in David. David was not walking in truth. And then three months later, he's like, man, I have to adapt. I have to adjust. That's called repentance. We'll see that actually next week in crystal clear form. And then he adjusts. He's like, I'm gonna do it the way God said to do it. So let me, uh, let me take one of those and make a couple things and you guys can, uh, you wanna write me an email, that's fine. Just it's jgaston at biltmorechurch.com, all right? jgaston at biltmorechurch.com. You can just shoot that to him. But I'm gonna just say this, when it comes to spirit, some of you're like, "You know what? I don't like you pushing me like this. You know, I don't I'm not an expressive person." And that could possibly be true. You could be like the phlegmatic and you could possibly just be a flatliner if that is a val- that is a valid reason if you're like, "You know what? Man of sorrows." And you're just like that. That's fine. But if I if I came up to you with 10 grand in an envelope and handed $10,000 to you in cash, Would you say, man, pastor, thank you. That's very benevolent of you. Or would you go, pastor, forget COVID and give me a big old COVID hug. Would you do that? Or would you just flatline it? Or hey, if you're married, it's your anniversary and you get a dozen roses and you go up to your wife, would you say, honey, I love you. Thank you for 25 years. Here. Two things. Number one, if you do that, we have marriage counseling. It's free because you're gonna need it, brother. All right. But number two, what she would say is, Bro, I need some heart. I need some emotion. Or some of y'all, let me just get let me get it. Some of you are like, I'm not that kind of person, I'm not that kind of person. And you yell your head off when you go to a football game. Some of y'all some of y'all look like this dude right here. You look like that guy. That guy. And the Panthers aren't even any good. And you still yell for him like that. You're like, well, I'm just I this football. This is church. It's really just an description of worth. That's all it is. What how worthy is my God? Now again, I know there's different emotions. I mean, let me get in a little bit more trouble. I know some of you are men that are thinking that's that's not. Let me be real careful. This is not misogynistic. It's actually a compliment because ladies tend to express worship better than men do. And so man, I'm just talking to you for a second. Some of you men, you don't express, and I fight with this. You don't express yourself in worship. You're like, if I put my hands up, am I, you know, do I have a question, am I touched down Jesus? What am I, what am I doing? What am I doing if I express myself? You think, man, it's just, it's out of my comfort zone. I don't want to do that. And you think maybe it's just not manly. It's just not masculine. My challenge to you will be, man, you look at a guy like David. David is a man's man. He cuts off a nine-foot giant's head, sticks it under his arm, marches back to Jerusalem. That's not a guy you mess with. He led armies. It's not a matter of masculinity. It's a matter of humility is what it is. bottom line. We're just too proud. It's like, well, somebody's gonna think I'm out of control. You know, the last thing I think we gotta worry about is you getting up to heaven. You get up to heaven, let me just say there's no possible way When you get up to heaven, God's gonna scold you. Say, hey, bro, you're just a little bit too crazy down there, all right? You just sang a little too loud. You got a little bit, I saw you dancing a little bit in that one service, and that's just a little bit, that's not gonna happen. So I'm just saying, turn it up a little bit. And uh, truth, all right, truth. Um, One of the ways you can worship is just by leaning in. Okay, I'm gonna gonna get some of you now. And don't, you can't move. If we worship in truth, uh, one of the ways we worship is Are you a passive or an aggressive listener? Okay. Okay. Everybody's looking at me. So the question is, what do you have right out on your lap? An aggressive listener has her Bible out. He has his phone with the scriptures taken down maybe. Hey, man, this kind of sounds like the worship I saw over in a doxology in Philippians. Passive listener is sitting there like this. I dare you. I dare you. Worship is a verb. You're leaning in. Let me give you one thing and then we're gonna, I'm going to give you a prayer. I was like, what can I, how can I bring this together? When we, talk about, when we talk about worship, worship is a Saturday night decision. Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. God made you and I at least dichotomous and maybe trichotomous, meaning body, soul, spirit. Meaning that he has made it where your physical does affect your spiritual. And so part of it is planning on Saturday for what's gonna happen Sunday morning. Young couples, listen to me. Parents, listen to me. I promise this is the case. How many times have you how many times have you gotten in a fight on Sunday morning trying to rush to church? Think pre-COVID, all right? How many times have you rushed to church and you got in a fight because you had to figure out what to wear and you were late and we're late all the time and What if you just like laid those out on the front end on Saturday night? What if you maybe like read the passage beforehand? What if you like sing a song if you know it's going to be on a worship set? Louis Louis Giglio, let me just read one paragraph. He says, consumers ask what's in it for me while those being consumed by worship declare I'm in it for you. For consumers, it's about what you get. For consumees, it's about what you give. For consumers, it's about style. For consumees, it's about surrender. For consumers, it's about something you buy. But for consumees, it's about realizing that you have already been bought. So here's a little prayer we put up. Just uh, don't, don't worry about writing it down. We'll put this out on, on uh, Facebook or, or uh, Instagram or whatever. So, But just l- listen to it. It's a prayer of a worshiper. Dear God, forgive me for being a consumer of worship and thinking it's about me. I've been there. You've been there. You may be there now. Help me to be consumed in worship and know that it's all about you. You're like, yeah, I need some help more. I need some more help in my home. No, listen, it's a worship issue before it's a marriage issue. It's a worship issue before it's an addiction issue. I wanna know you First act of worship is repenting and embracing Jesus. Serve you, adore you in Jesus' name, amen.